You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning. Glad to have you back in to week five of the Ultimate Road Trip, a series where we've been uh, examining the various missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. We spent the first couple of weeks in the first missionary journey with both Paul and Barnabas, and then, of course, uh, weeks three and four in the second missionary journey with Paul and Silas in place of Barnabas. And then, of course, this morning we're kicking off the third missionary journey, and we will conclude this series next Sunday. And let me tell you before I forget, I do not want you to miss next Sunday. We're going to be talking about something a little controversial in the church today, a practice that occurs multiple times throughout the book of Acts, one that I think is deeply misunderstood for today. And uh, so we'll come back next week. We'll finish this series out. We have one standalone message after that. And then October 1st, we begin the three services and the new sermon series in the book of Mark. Very exciting for both of those things. Um, This current series, I think for me, hopefully for you, has been both fun and helpful. We've covered some terms in this series that I think are really important to the Christian faith, but that really need clarification for the modern Christian context. Terms like missions. We talked about that the first week. What does it mean when we say missions matter? What is the mission, so to speak? Uh, Last week, we talked extensively about what evangelism is and what it is not. And evangelism, again, very important to carrying out the Great Commission, making disciples of all the nations and baptizing them and teaching them. It, It all begins with that evangelistic effort of the church. We've talked about the reality of demons in this series. Actually, we're going to be talking about that a little bit today as well. It comes up in our story, but we did that in week three. If you remember Paul and Silas and the the girl that was possessed with the serpent spirit or the spirit of the python, if you're like, what in the world are you talking about? Go back and listen. Uh, I don't have time to unpack it again this morning, but this series has really forced us to examine and clarify what some of these really important concepts are, what they mean for today. And this morning is certainly no different. We are met once again with a term that is thrown around a lot in the church, a really important term, one that needs clarity deeply, and that is the term repentance. Repentance. Not the happiest word, but certainly a very important word. It is of supreme value to the Christian faith. It is the key, really, to, I believe, the beginning of forgiveness in the life of a believer. You've heard the phrase before, surely, the, uh, the, the, the great phrase, time heals all wounds, right? That's sort of a, a lazy man's hope. Well, if I just don't do anything, maybe time will do it for me, right? I mean, that is lazy as can be. Maybe it's true in some cases. It's certainly not entirely true. It's not a biblical idea at all. Time does not heal the wounds that sin creates in your life. C.S. Lewis talked about this in his well-known and helpful little volume titled The Problem of Pain. Lewis writes, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. I have heard others and I have heard myself recounting cruelties and falsehoods committed in boyhood as if they were of no concern to the present speaker and even with laughter. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or to the guilt of a sin. 
The guilt is washed out not by time, but by repentance and the blood of Christ. If we have repented these early sins, we should remember the price of our forgiveness and be humble. It is not time that heals the wounds of our sin, Lewis says, but repentance and the blood of Jesus. And this is certainly true. I would wholeheartedly agree with this, and I believe the Bible would agree with this. This morning, if you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 19. Acts 19 is where we're going to begin. And I want us to ask this question as we read this passage. What are the stages of repentance? What are the stages of repentance? We think of repentance, I imagine, if I were to like poll you, not only would we have slightly different answers among you, but but I imagine that, that regardless of the differences, they would all more or less agree that repentance is a singular sort of one time event that takes place and then it is over with. And that's just not true in my experience. My experience, and I think a good biblical case can be made for this, repentance is a sequence of actions that takes place that when you put them all together, you get repentance out of all of it. That that all of them together make up repentance. There are stages that a person goes through. And at the end of all of those stages, when all of them have occurred together, repentance has occurred. And so we're going to walk through these stages this morning in order to get a better understanding of what this looks like. Because when I say that repentance is crucial to the Christian faith, I cannot overstate it enough. You cannot, hear me, I'm just going to say it as clearly as I can. You cannot be born again without repentance. To say it another way, you cannot be a faithful follower of Jesus without repentance. Let me say it a third way. You cannot be a Christian without repentance. Is that clear? We have to understand then what it means. Because if we call ourselves Christians, and yet we really don't know what repentance is, how do we know we've done it? And if we haven't done it, how can we say faithfully that we are who we say we are? So my aim here is to get a clearer picture of what repentance looks like. Before we jump into the text, let me step the stage so that you understand contextually where we are in all this. This is the beginning of the third missionary journey of Paul. Look at verse 1 of Acts 19. It says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. Ephesus, the place to which the letter to the Ephesians is written. Should give you some biblical uh, points to connect here. More than likely, the disciples that Paul comes across here are, uh, we're going to talk about them in depth next week, but these were men that were baptized by John the Baptist But when they were asked whether or not they had received the Holy Spirit, they were like, what? They'd never heard of this, right? They didn't have the whole story. And so Paul properly evangelizes them in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming Holy Spirit. They receive the Spirit, they're born again, and they are all baptized into the name of Jesus. From there, he does what he always does. Last week, remember, we talked about how he committed to a plan and he followed the plan. Where did the plan usually begin? In the synagogues, right? Look at verse 8. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Again, like last week, we talked about how in addition to committing to a plan, he anticipated opposition. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, 
speaking evil of the way. The way is, is a, a term that was used to identify Christians in the early years of its manifestation. When, when speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Can we just agree that that is an epic name? Tyrannus. Wow. Uh, the hall of Tyrannus. What is this? So this would have been like a lecture hall. Keep in mind that this is a Greek culture. They're enamored with learning, with education, with, with uh, philosophy. And, and, and so these were sort of lecture halls that were built and owned by individuals, typically were called the lecture hall of whoever built and owned it, in this case, Tyrannus. And apparently whenever Tyrannus was not using the lecture hall to philosophize or whatever it was that he was doing, he would allow Paul to come in and lecture according to his philosophy or gospel, uh, and this is how he carries this out. And this continues for a long time. So when we think of like mission trips, we think of like one or two weeks, right? Or if you're radical, maybe a month, or if you're really committed to Jesus, maybe the whole summer. Maybe you give up the whole summer and you go on a mission trip. But keep in mind, Paul is not on a mission trip. He is a missionary, This is his life. This is a long-term effort that Paul is engaged in. Look at verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. One of the strangest things about reading a narrative in the scripture is that you can literally blink an eye and two years have passed. And if you're not really paying attention, you miss that. That's a big deal. I mean, two years. Two years ago, September of 2021, we were barely out of the pandemic. A lot has happened in two years, has it not? A lot has taken place in two years. It just happened in one verse. If you weren't paying attention, you missed it. By this point, Paul had become very well known in this region. Look at verses 11 and 12. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Pause, really big key detail here. It's one thing to like, you know, sneeze on a napkin and touch somebody with it and they get healed, right? But in order to do that and also demons come out of people, this sort of takes it up a notch. And this gets the attention of several people in the area. Paul is not only healing people of their maladies, he is casting out demons as well. He is contending against satanic forces. Now, this catches the attention of a traveling group of exorcists. I mentioned these guys two weeks ago in Acts 16 when we were talking about the girl with the serpent spirit, but, but I, I want you to just hear the actual account in Acts 19. I'm going to read it for you. This is verses 13 through 16. It says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. By the way, ladies, as you name your children, Sceva's not one of them, all right? You want a good, strong biblical name that does not sound like a skin disease. I'm just saying. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on him, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, hopefully over the many years that God gives me to pastor this church, we will not always agree on all things, and that's okay. 
right? Hopefully, we can at least agree that this story would have made an excellent VeggieTales episode. <laughs> right? I mean, the sons of Skeva could be bananas. They go in the house as bananas. They come out as peeled bananas. I, it just, it's like, it was right there for them, and they missed it. They swung and missed, is all I'm saying. <laughs> it's not really the story that I, I want us to focus on this morning. But it's the response to the story that I think is really interesting. It's the reaction to what takes place here that provides a clear picture to the stages of repentance that I believe are crucial to to really arriving at repentance. Notice stage one. We'll begin here. The people were convicted. Stage one is this stage of conviction. Look at the first part of verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks. Keep in mind, pause for a moment, that we're in the ancient world. This is the pre-modern world. It was a much bigger world back then. We didn't have social media, praise God. We didn't have television and news media, praise God, right? I mean, it was, in order for things to get around, it had to be a really big deal. You couldn't just hear about things that took place in France five seconds ago because of your phone, right? It had to be a big deal in order for details to travel quickly. In this case, apparently, Word about these exorcists getting beaten and mastered and running out of the house with no clothes on gets people's attention very quickly, and it begins to spread like wildfire from house to house. In the marketplace, they're talking about it. In common gatherings, they're talking about it. And look at the response. When people heard about this instance, look at how the people responded. Verse 17, it says, and fear fell upon them. Fear fell on them. Now, fear is a a really misunderstood thing, I think, in the Bible and in the church today. Fear is a bad thing, right? I mean, it's a bad thing. We we talk about it as a bad thing. We think of 2 Timothy 1.7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love, self-control. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. You know, to live in fear, I mean, we should reject fear. To live in fear is to live not by faith. But here's the tricky part about the Bible is that, especially when you're reading it in English, you end up with several words from the original language that get translated into one singular English word. And it's hard to differentiate without a little bit of context or better understanding the language underlying it. So for example, in 2 Timothy 1.7, the word fear, it's the Greek term delia. It's a word that means something like cowardice or timidity. So the idea in 2 Timothy 1.7 is that God did not give us as Christians a spirit of cowardice or timidity, but one of boldness and courage and power. We talked last week, again, about the opposition that we can anticipate when we share the gospel in a hostile environment. We're going to get slandered. We're going to get cursed. We're going to run out, right? And what 2 Timothy 1.7 is saying is don't be afraid to continue even though you know this is going to happen. Have courage. Be bold. Don't be a coward. Don't be timid. We don't fear the world because why? Jesus has already overcome the world. So we don't need to, be, we don't need to have a, a spirit of fear when we go and do these things. Now, with that said, the word fear in verse 17 in Acts 19 is not the same word as 2 Timothy 1.7. It's not delia. It's the word from which we get our English word phobia. It's the Greek term phobos. It's a word that literally means terror terror. It's the same word that is often used when we talk about having a fear of God. Uh, This is a word that conveys the idea of fear over something that we have no control. 
something that we cannot possibly in our own power handle. That's the kind of fear that strikes these people in Ephesus. When they hear that a demon literally mastered and beat up not one, but seven grown men, and not only men, but exorcists, they began to think, well, this could happen to them. That could probably happen to us as well. Now, this is where I believe repentance begins. It begins with a kind of fear that a potentially bad thing not only could happen to me, but probably should happen to me. It's not only a possibility of it, but a probability of it. And I have no way of reckoning against it. This is the idea of conviction, and it's really what conviction conveys in the New Testament. It's the Greek term elenko. It's a word that means to lay bare or to expose. In other words, whenever I am confronted with the truth of the gospel, it lays bare or exposes my guilt and my sin. Whenever I am confronted with the reality of a hell, it exposes my utter lack of control over my eternal destiny. And in the case of these people in Ephesus, whenever they were confronted with a real, actual demon, one that has the power to overcome not one but seven exorcists, men who should be able to have a handle on this problem, it exposes how helpless they truly are against such a threat. And it's convicting. It lays bare my weakness, my inability to contend. Paul speaks similarly of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He speaks about a former letter, which we know is 1 Corinthians. And if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, it's not a loving pastoral letter to a church, right? He beats those people up in that letter. They were engaged in all kinds of, of heinous, sinful activity. And 1 Corinthians is just an itemized list of all the ways you guys are definitely going to hell if you don't fix it, right? Seriously, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a rough letter, really brutal stuff. And he refers to it in 2 Corinthians 7. Look at verses 8 and 9. For even if I have made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you not only for, or though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, he says, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. He goes on in verse 11, he says, For what, see what zeal this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, there's that word again, phobos, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. The first stage of repentance begins with a deep-seated conviction, a fear of real consequence, not worldly fear, but godly fear. It's a coming to terms with reality that if I continue living this way I am currently living, if I continue in my sin, there are consequences I am going to eventually face over which I have no power or control. And that scares me. There's fear. And that leads me to stage two, which is curiosity. Read verse 17 again, but let's look at the whole thing this time. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So they move from a place of conviction and fear into 
the action of extolling the name of Jesus. Now, what does this mean? I mean, by a show of hands, you don't have to because you're not going to raise it. Who used the word extol recently? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. It's a great word. I mean, it's on the table now. You know about it, right? Uh, what is this word? And, and so in Greek, it's the word megaluno. Uh, it's the word that means to enlarge or amplify or to magnify. In other words, their conviction and their fear concerning this real threat of attack against this demonic power led them to begin magnifying the name of Jesus. This is what happens in repentance, in the, in the stages of repentance. When we are met with real consequences we cannot avoid for a sin over which we know we are guilty, we start getting real curious about Jesus, don't we? This is what people do with any problem. So begin for a moment stepping back from the discussion over faith and just think practically for a moment about life in general. Whenever you have a problem in your life over which you have no control or power, something that you cannot solve on your own, what do you do? You begin looking for options, right? I can't fix this, maybe someone can. So you start calling around, asking around. The same, I believe, is true when it comes to sin and the threat of evil in our life. We feel a sense of conviction, I can't do anything about this, and that moves us into a place of curiosity. Maybe someone else can. And of course, that someone is Jesus, correct. That is what the people in Ephesus are doing. They realize that they cannot solve this issue with this demon, but surely Jesus can. I mean, we, we've heard stories about Jesus, and even Paul, who, who seems to be proclaiming Jesus, he has power over demons by the name of Jesus. And so we, we got to do something. Let's start extolling the name of Jesus. There's an interesting part of this text, and it's very easy to miss if you're not really looking for it. But the, the people were afraid of this demon, right? I mean, they were afraid that this demon might attack them in the same way that it had attacked the exorcist. But the question is, why? Why did fear fall upon them? Demons don't typically attack whole villages. I mean, not, not at least in the biblical accounts. Maybe that does happen. But in the Bible accounts, uh, it, that's just, you don't see that happening. Think about for a moment, uh, think about the, one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels, the Gerasene demoniac, the man of the tombs. Anyone remember that? Luke 8. We covered this in our verse-by-verse -verse study in Sunday school, or life Bible studies, what we call it here. This was like 40 weeks ago. <laughs> We're in week 79, I think, this morning in our Bible studies. I think this was somewhere in the 20s. But Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 27, this is what it says. When Jesus had stepped out on land, he had been in a boat. When he had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, for a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Again, with the no clothes. I don't know what that's about. Notice that he lives among the tombs. He lives in a graveyard away from the city, in isolation. Very normal uh, detail in, in a story like this. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, a couple side notes before we get to the other part of this passage. Just, I want to point this out because I think it's important. Notice, first of all, that the demon has no real problem recognizing who Jesus actually is, which is kind of the theme throughout the Gospels. No one gets Jesus right except for Gentiles, sinners, and demons, the people of God, no clue who he is. All the bad people, 
seem to get it right. In this case, the demon recognizes, this is not a rabbi, this is not a prophet, this is not a good teacher, this is the son of the most high God. And as a result of that, he recognizes, secondly, Jesus has the power to torment him. That's kind of the point, right? Jesus is stronger, as strong as the Gerasene demoniac is, and he is. He breaks chains. He can overpower several people at one time. It's one of the sort of earmarks of demonic power in the Bible is the sort of superhuman strength to overcome people you should not be able to overcome naturally, and he is shaking in his boots right now at the sight of Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. But notice that the man doesn't live anywhere near the city and doesn't seem to be all that interested in bothering anyone in the city. He lives in a cemetery. He lives away. So why are the people in Ephesus afraid? Why do they have so much fear? Why do they immediately begin extolling the name of Jesus the moment they hear about this? I'm going to suggest to you it's because they were doing something to invite such an attack into their lives. And that brings us to the third stage of repentance, which is confession. Confession, verses 18 and 19. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What were they doing that would have invited demonic activity into their life? Yeah, they were touring with magic. It says that they were practicing magical arts. They had books, they had artifacts, they had paraphernalia, probably some Metallica CDs mixed in as well, right? And they, just kidding. They, this word magic arts, it says that they were practicing magic arts. Very interesting word in the Greek language. It's a compound word. You could translate this or understand this as they were practicing curious things. They were tampering or meddling in things that they had no business tampering or meddling with. So I said a few weeks ago that uh, demons are real. We believe that they are real. We don't think that they are made up or like this is how the old ancient world thought about mental illness. They couldn't describe mental illness, so they described it as demons. I would reject that wholeheartedly. I believe that there is also mental illness, but I also think that demons are real. There's no doubt about that. They have conversations with people, and they are terrified of Christ, and there's a whole host of reasons for why we have no issue saying that, right? And the same way, I would say, I believe magic is real. Magic is a real thing. It's why the Bible warns against it. The Bible is not interested in warning against things that are not real, okay? You're not going to find that. You're going to find the Bible warning you to avoid things that are real and can potentially harm you. Magic is an attempt to mock God's power, to imitate God's power, but it always falls short. So for example, uh, when's the first time we see magic in the Bible? Anyone remember this? This is, it takes place in Exodus. This is during the uh, time where Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh and they begin performing signs against Pharaoh to let the people go. And he hires court magicians who come in to try to mimic their, their power. And if you've ever seen like, what is it? The Prince of Egypt, the, the cartoon version, which is great by the way. Um, <laughs> but there are problems. So one of the things that you, you get in that movie is it seems like the court magicians are like sort of sleight of hand doing things that aren't really magic, but kind of appear to be like magic, right? I don't think that's what's going on. 
I don't think this is like smoke and mirrors. I think they have the ability to do things that they should not be able to do. I, I think that, that you're dealing with Egyptian magicians that are tapping into something not good. And they're able to do certain things. They're able to conjure certain things that are not good. In fact, there's some wordplay in the Hebrew there. I don't have time to break it down this morning, but really, really interesting stuff in that passage. We're going to be doing a study in Exodus, uh, probably like at this point, five years from now. Um, but in our life Bible studies, when we finish Luke, we've, we've got a few more weeks after that. And probably sometime in 24, we'll start it. Uh, but, but this is, I believe, a real practice that they're doing. It's just that as the signs that Moses and Aaron perform, as God imbues divine power to them, ramps up, they can't keep up with it. They're not powerful enough. They see them doing things that they're eventually like, sorry, Pharaoh, we, we can't do this. This is above our pay grade, right? It is a real thing. The people of God are warned against this. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. By the way, if you're including that in a list of something you're doing, you know you're in the wrong, right? <laughs> he goes on and says, or anyone who practices divination or who tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, think Ouija board or psychic, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I sound like a fundamentalist right now. I'm just reading the text. Exodus twenty-two eighteen. not only are you to not practice these things, you're to put to death people who do this. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. This is how seriously the people of God took this in the Old Testament. Anytime kings in the Old Testament meddled or tampered with the dark arts, if you will, it never works out well for them. It never pans out. It always ends badly for them. Magic is not fake. Maybe some kinds of it is, right? Some of it is fantasy. Some of it is fiction, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real Witchcraft, real, real sorcery, things of which the Bible speaks against, things like Ouija boards or automatic writing or, or seances or psychics. These are things that have the potential to actually harm you. New Age mysticism, don't meddle with this stuff. It has the potential to open doors that you are not able on your own to close. So now come back to the text for a moment and understand what's happening. The people in Ephesus hear about a demon who has attacked not one, but seven exorcists. And they are immediately struck with fear that the same thing might happen to them. Why? Because they've been meddling with magic. They fear that we're next. They, we, we know we're guilty of this. We, we know we've, we've opened this door. We've, we've been curious about things that we, we should not have been curious about, that we should not have pursued. And so they not only begin having conviction and fear over their action, but they start getting curious about Jesus instead. And then they confessed it. Let me be very clear about this. There is no repentance without confession. There is no repentance without confession. There's no forgiveness without confession. That seems to be what John is implying in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will forgive us. He will cleanse us if we confess our sins. That's a big if. 
Confession and repentance walk hand in hand. This is one of the reasons why I am a huge fan of practicing the 12 steps as a Christian. The steps walk hand in hand through this process. They have you make a list. They have you make a moral inventory of your sin that you have committed, and then it leads you to confess that sin to yourself and to God and to who? One other person who is alive and is consciously aware you are confessing to them, by the way. You can't confess to the guy sitting at the park bench 50 yards from you. They need to know what you're doing and be able to comprehend it. To me, this is the most beneficial part of the practice of the 12 steps. There are a lot of reasons for why you ought to practice the 12 steps, no doubt. This is number one. There is no other process that I am aware of that systematically walks a person through confession and repentance the way the 12 steps do. That doesn't mean that you can't confess your sin and repent without the 12 steps. Certainly people have done that for 2,000 years, right? But I just don't know of another systematic process like the 12 steps. And by the way, steps four through six, which is what I am referring to, are typically where people walk away (laughs) because it's hard. Let me give you a truth. You cannot repent from something that you are unwilling to admit. You cannot repent from something that you are unwilling to confess, to acknowledge. The people in Ephesus, they do confess, and that moves them into the final stage, which is correction. They bring correction. That's the ultimate goal of repentance, right? Uh, to, 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 To begin an action that moves you away from the sin that you were previously committing, to bring correction to the error that you were living in. There are two primary words in the Bible that illustrate this both very well, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. The Hebrew word is a word that means to turn back. It means to do an about face. It means that you are walking one direction. To repent means to turn and go the other direction. Give the camera people a a hand. That was excellent camera work. (laughs) The other word is in the Greek. It's the word metanoeo. It's a a verb that means to undergo a change in frame of mind or action. In other words, it means that you are doing something. To repent means that you now have had a change of mind about what you are doing such that you are now going to stop and do something different, something else. Both convey the idea of bringing correction to your sin, to move away from it, to change what you are doing. Action is implied here. Repentance doesn't simply mean acknowledging your sin. It means turning away from it. What do the people in Ephesus do? They burned their books. They destroyed everything. They removed the possibility of returning to it. They didn't just confess their sin. They corrected it. So get the picture of of repentance from start to finish. It begins with an awareness of the real ramifications that are going to come my way if something does not change, the consequences of my current actions and or sin. And that moves me into a place of not only conviction, but curiosity. How can Jesus help me with this? And that moves you to then confess that sin to God, to yourself, to other people, and to move then into a place of correction. Repentance doesn't happen until correction follows. Some of you, I fear, think you have believed the gospel because you've confessed your sin, but you've never actually repented of it. You've never actually corrected anything. 
you've acknowledged it. Yeah, we've got magic books. And you just left it on the shelf. And what happens after two or three or six months when the high wears off and the books are still there, maybe you get them down and you start looking at them here and there and then maybe it's a, a daily affair. And before you know it, the books have mastered you again. And you can interpret that however you will. It's probably not magic books. Some of you have sin in your life that you've never confessed, that you've never You've never come to a place of confession and repentance. You come to church because people compel you to or because you're living in the South in the Bible Belt and you're not a Muslim or a Jewish person or, or you're codependent and someone asked you and you couldn't say no and so now you're here and you're not really sure why. <laughs> it happens more than you think. And maybe prayerfully, Lord willing, this message has shaken you out of the fantasy land you're living in just for a moment and snapped you back into reality. And now, hopefully, you're wondering, how can Jesus help me with this? Because I am guilty. I have done a lot of things I'm not proud of. And spoiler alert, he can help you. And he will help you by applying his death, burial, and resurrection over your life, but it begins by confessing your sin and repenting of it and believing the gospel, making him Lord of your life, taking direction from him and not your own sinful, fleshly desires. He'll tell you to turn away from it and you will do it because he's your Lord now. The question is, will you do it? Will you believe? the gospel? Will you confess and repent? Or will you continue to suppress the feeling of angst and fear that you maybe feel right now and hope that it goes away by lunchtime so that you can keep on doing what you're doing, which is, by the way, working out so well, <laughs> I'm sure. The only person who can answer that question is you. The Lord Jesus is calling you to repent. He is calling you to surrender, to confess, and allow him to bring correction to your life. Not only now, but to open eternity up for you as well in fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for clear picture of a people who move from fear and into curiosity and into confession of sin and into correction that when put all together paints a beautiful picture of what repentance looks like. Would you redeem this last 40 minutes or so such that this time would be used to shape us more into the image of your son. And that for some here, perhaps even be the, the final call that leads them to repent and to believe for the first time and be born again. We desire to see that. You are a God who saves. Would you do your saving work here this morning? Would you break down the hardness of heart Would you apply your grace in a way that only you are able? 
We love you. We confess, God, that we have sinned against you and others. Would you bring correction to our lives as well? We pray these things in the name of the Father, through the Son, and by the Spirit. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. We're going to finish this time uh, next week in the book of Acts. And uh, again, we are going to be talking about some, uh, some controversial things maybe for some of you, for some of you maybe not, but uh, uh, it's going to be a great time together. And then we'll have a standalone week, like I said, September 24th, and then October 1st, all of the things get more fun. We get three services, 8, 9, 30, and 11. God bless you. We'll see you next time.